0: Well hello and thank you so much for downloading episode 441 of the Speak Life podcast. My name is Thomas Thurgood, media producer at Speak Life and uh, happy new year. To kick us off uh, in this brand new year of the Speak Life podcast, we're going to bring you some some more content about the two episodes of the Rest is History podcast uh, presented by Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook because on that podcast, which is a very good podcast, recommend you uh, check it out and listen to the two episodes that they did on Jesus recently, um, Jesus Christ the History and Jesus Christ the Mystery. In those episodes, they effectively take a... F- A fairly sceptical, historical approach, uh, just looking at at the life of Jesus and, and seeing what they make of it. At the end of last year, we released on our YouTube channel and on the podcast a conversation that Glenn had with... Peter J. Williams from Tyndale House, about the historicity of the nativity story and other aspects of the New Testament. What we're gonna bring you today in this episode is Glenn Scrivener, just kind of giving some of his own thoughts. If you'd like to watch it as a, as a video, it's actually on our main YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash speak media as a Glenn Scrivener reacts kind of video. And while you're at it, you might want to check out our New Year uh, video, the first ever New Year seasonal video that Speak Life has done. It's a poem by Glenn Scrivener that we recorded in New York in Times Square. So that was a a real uh, joy to make that. Okay, well, without further ado, over to Glenn Scrivener.
1: Hello, I'm Glenn Scrivener from Speak Life, and this is a yes and reaction video. Uh, We are saying yes and to Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook, who host just the best podcast going. The Rest is History is certainly my favorite podcast, and I think I've listened to the great majority of its 288 episodes and counting and have loved them. Uh, I knew Tom before he was famous. Well, before he was uh, podcast famous, anyway. I first met him in 2019 when he graciously gave me an interview regarding his wonderful book, Dominion. I've spoken to him a number of times since then, and you can see all the interviews we've done with Tom Holland in the description box. He has been nothing but supportive of me and my writing. He uh, endorsed my book, "The Air We Breathe," which is basically "Poundland Dominion, really. And I am nothing but grateful to Tom and 100 percent positive towards him and these episodes, which I think will get people thinking in a lot of helpful ways. This reaction video is me saying yes and to the rest is history's latest pair of episodes which are about Jesus. Episodes 287 and 288 are entitled Jesus Christ the Mystery and Jesus Christ the History. And as you'll see, I thoroughly enjoyed them and learnt lots too. If you want to know the thrust of both those episodes, I can do no better than play you Tom Holland's final words of summary at the end of episode 288. I don't think that you need supernatural explanations to explain Jesus and the emergence
2: of Christianity. But having said that, you know, I think there are lots of reasons why one might choose not to, to believe in God and specifically perhaps not believe in the, the Christian understanding of God. But I would say that the inadequacy of the New Testament as source would not be one of them that I would deduce. So I've come to this from studying both the origins of Islam and from studying classical sources. And the the closer I, up I get to them, the the more you know, I've got, I'm pretty impressed by <laughs> actually how much evidence there is for Jesus.
1: Okay, so got the parameters here. He doesn't think you need a supernatural explanation for the extraordinary dominion of Jesus and his church. You don't need to believe in God to explain all that. But on the other hand, if you're going to reject Christianity, then saying the New Testament is bad history is not a good reason. There might be good reasons for rejecting Christianity, but calling the New Testament bunk is not one of them. Uh, Tom, having considered the ancient world and Islam, is really quite impressed by how much evidence there is for Jesus. So for all the keen Christians like me, we'll be disappointed because Tom says you can explain the whole thing naturally. And for all those who reject Christianity on historical grounds, they'll be disappointed because Tom is really quite impressed by the historicity of Jesus. Those are the bookends of where Tom lands on this question. But in this episode, I'll be going through the second uh, instalment of The Rest is History podcast, number 288, and we'll summarise number 287 along the way. Do listen to both episodes and do subscribe to The Rest is History, my favourite podcast. Uh, here we go with Dominic Sandbrook summarising where we are up to. Having set the scene in our previous podcast,
3: we are going to to try to reconstruct as best we can as historians, as sceptical historians, I suppose it's fair to say, the life of jesus aren't we so we think he existed we definitely think jesus Absolutely. existed you established that
1: in the previous episode all these references all the the roman references and so on so episode 287 had dominic asking was jesus cooked up by paul or others was he a fiction was he a fairy tale and tom says emphatically i don't think any historian any credible historian thinks that And then Tom looks at extra-biblical sources for Jesus. Uh, He looks at people like uh, Josephus and Marabas, Serapion, and Pliny the Younger, Tacitus, Suetonius. Some of these sources are from nearly a century later, but as Tom and Dom say, this is the constant challenge with sources in the ancient world. Then they look at the New Testament, but there's a glaring omission in this first installment. When they go to the New Testament, they go to the Gospels only. They don't go to Paul, which is surprising to me because most people think, and I know Tom thinks, the letters of Paul are earlier, and actually his dominion argument is based on the writings of Paul, and he plays a massive part in the the thesis of dominion. And in our 2019 interview, Tom said that emphatically. How do you explain, then, erupting into just that kind of classical world, the claim that God endured that kind of shameful, excruciating death. And of all the people to make that claim, the Jews. Uh, it's are very that. strange. It's
2: very strange. And yet clearly it, it, it's drawing on um, elements that are deeply infused throughout Jewish scriptures. Mm. And the person so far, you know, we, we our earliest source is Paul. Mm. So you look at Paul really for that answer because we don't have anything earlier. Mm-hmm. And you get, I mean, there, there are, from Paul's letters, you get the sense of two very strange things that, that Paul seems to think have happened and which a historian is not qualified to rule on. Mm-hmm. But one of those is Paul clearly has no doubt that Jesus has risen from the dead and in some way is a part of the one creator God of Israel. Mm-hmm. and what's more, everybody else he's writing to seems to accept this for granted as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't need to tell you, Paul is an incredibly argumentative writer, and all mm-hmm. his mm-hmm. letters are essentially arguments, but he's not, he never has to argue about that. He's right. always taken that for right. granted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the second thing is that Paul seems to think that, that Jesus, this criminal who suffered the death of a slave, mm. uh, who in, in some way is God, Mm. has appeared to him personally mm. and has told him to, to, mm-hmm. to go and, 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 and preach this. Mm. So that's very mysterious as well.
1: Tom even said that the creed that is recorded from 1 Corinthians 15 is incredibly early, and he seems to agree with me that it's from a few years after the first Easter. And what Paul delivered to the Corinthians, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 was of first importance and we can sort of date that in terms of a sort of a creedal form to perhaps within a few years of Yeah, it's incredibly early,
2: I mean it's incredibly early
1: And he says it's according to the scriptures Put to death according to the scriptures, raised on the third day according to the scriptures So he's saying it's in total continuity with with the God of Israel and it still is the same. So it's a rupture. It's a rupture. I mean, it's a rupture. It's yes. strange. It's, it's baffling. Now, I can understand why Tom takes the route that he takes in the podcast, because it's a well-trodden path. Historical Jesus scholars will often begin with the classical sources and then the archaeology, and then they'll imagine that those are the default authorities and that the Bible has to fit those givens. And it doesn't really treat the Bible as a historical source. And then often they just go to the Gospels. But the whole time, the best and the most explosive evidence for Jesus is hiding away in plain sight. The earliest and best evidence for Jesus, and for his death and resurrection, and for his exalted identity, is all in Paul. But usually the historical Jesus scholars, they go to the Gospels, and in episode 287, Tom says, at the macro level, the Gospels accord with what we know of the ancient world, both the historical sources and the archaeology. And he talks about why the four evangelists are canonical, why they are the ones that are listed in the Scriptures. They are the ones put into the canon of Scripture for good historical reasons. Thank you to Irenaeus for that. So that was the first installment. That was episode 287. And then in the second installment, episode 288, Tom goes immediately to what is I think a really important argument for taking Jesus seriously. Let's look. So on the
2: on, on I mean on that question, did he exist or not? I think when you read the gospels, you have the definite sense of a remarkable teacher. So simply on the basis of the parables that he tells, the stories, they are the most memorable stories ever written. They are incredibly powerful and effective. His teachings are, you know, they stick in the mind. Yeah. And so the question is, well, where, where, where did these teachings come from? If there is no historical Jesus, if there is no person that they derive from, then we have to assume that basically they emerged from kind of assorted traditions that they were put together by the gospel writers. And if you think about, you know, you tell a writer you've got to, Come up with um, a figure who, in two thousand years' time, will be seen by millions and millions of people across the entire world as both human and divine, and he will have been seen as such for two thousand years. That would be a tough ask. It would, especially if you get a committee to do it. Oh my god! Yeah, exactly. You get four people doing it. I think that's re- so. It seems to me that that is a much more improbable <laughs> explanation that it was just made up than the yes. fact that it does derive from someone extraordinary and. Also, the fact that he is an extraordinary figure is what explains why he comes to be seen as as what he was. Um, so, So to that extent, I'm not skeptical.
1: This is a brilliant argument made often by Peter Williams, who we're doing a second episode with this week. Peter Williams is the principal of Tyndale House in Cambridge and a world-renowned scholar of the New Testament and the ancient world. He he is often saying, uh, look, there is undeniable genius in the teaching of Jesus. There's enough genius to have remade the modern world, to recalibrate the moral assumptions of billions of people and found civilizations. Then the question is, what is the origin of that genius? Did it come from this historical figure, Jesus, or did the apostles invent it? That would be more improbable, I would say. Uh, I've got a scene in my book, uh, The Air We Breathe, where I just imagine what it would look like in the writer's room if... Somebody came in and, and said, Okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I have a job for you. Uh, I know you've had no training or prior experience, but we need you to write the most influential works in literature. As for the timing, we'll have to move on this. Uh, we'll have to move on this, unfortunately. It would have been better to wait a couple of centuries before inventing our legends. That way, none of Christ's contemporaries could contradict our story. But we are where we are. The Apostle Paul has forced the pace, writing his letters to churches around the Mediterranean. He's been preaching Jesus as the promised Messiah, and heaven knows why. But all these people have believed in God on a cross. The story seems to be working, so now we need you to fill in the details. Please can you write the origin story for our hero? Paul's letter gave the bare bones. We want you to put warm flesh on them. Are you up for it? It won't be easy. We need this to be the life and times of the greatest figure in human history. God, but also man. Sinless, but fully alive. Pure, but with profound depths. The judge of the world, but with bottomless compassion. The fulfillment of all Jewish hopes, but with a global appeal. A man in time, but a man for all times. We need a hero with heart-melting kindness, yet steely determination. We need him blasting the self-righteous and befriending sinners. We need sublime ethical teaching to fall from his lips, the kind that build civilizations. We need extraordinary miracles from him, the kinds that would have been noticed and therefore could be contradicted by the generation to which you're writing. We need a credible, narrative, uh, a credible narrative arc whereby he remains impeccably righteous but is nonetheless condemned as a blasphemer. And we need it all to stand up to scrutiny, scriptural, theological, geographic, linguistic, literary, and historical. It needs to be believable both near and far, now and later, for those who've lived through these times and for all generations to come. Got it? Now get to work. So that's what it would take to cook up the story of Jesus. And both Tom and Dominic have uh, a chuckle at the implications of how improbable it would be to have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John be the geniuses that come up with this material. Surely it is more probable to think that the source of the genius is Jesus himself. So that is where we're up to uh, in the podcast. But before we conclude that Tom thinks that every detail of the Bible is inerrant, uh, Tom goes on immediately to say that he doesn't think the birth narratives of Jesus happened historically. Boo hiss.
2: However, there are obviously aspects of the story that I am skeptical about. uh, And and I think pretty much anyone familiar with, uh, you know, the, the the basic details would be sceptical about. And very, very sadly, and I hate to play, you know, Scrooge and the Grinch rolled oh. into one, but I think all the Christmas stuff is, is most unlikely to be true. Okay, this is very poor. This is very
3: poor, Tom, and very disappointing.
1: He hates to be a Grinch. Uh, Dominic calls it uh, a very poor Christmas performance. Um, but we've decided that we're going to tackle Tom's objections to Christmas in an episode all by itself. I'm going to talk to Peter Williams from Cambridge uh, in another episode, and we're going to discuss Tom's objections in Luke chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 2, and we'll talk about, is it really insane to think that, the, uh, that Mary and Joseph would have to go back to their uh, hometown? We'll get into that with uh, Peter Williams. But uh, for now, let's dive back into a key point that Tom makes about Jesus, um, and that is, is his self understanding but the thing that is manifest in the gospels and as far as we can tell
2: is something that is taken for granted by everybody who becomes a christian as early as back as we can trace the evidence is that jesus has to put it mildly a very elevated sense of his role right so he he is making incredible claims about himself But he's not not claiming, am I right in
3: thinking, Tom, that he is not explicitly claiming to be the son of God? That's not
2: something he goes around saying. I think it's not clear. One of the telling things in the gospels, I think, is that Jesus in his parables and so on, where he portrays kings seem to be allying the, the role of the king with himself rather than with God the father, if you want to put it like that. Okay. And he's preaching the coming of the kingdom of God. And we'll perhaps come on to what he means by the kingdom of God. But he is, I mean, I, th- I think I think that he is claiming quite high things for himself because I think otherwise it's impossible to explain why his followers come to assume the, these things about him. So, so um, I, I guess two really salient pieces of evidence for that would be that that he summons, according to the gospels, 12 followers, 12 disciples, and these approximate to the 12 tribes of Israel. And the the 12 tribes of Israel will be gathered at the end of days by God. So this seems to be what Jesus is doing. And the other thing is that Jesus is executed for claiming to be king of the Judeans. He is claiming a kingly role. Now, whether that is as God's deputy, whether in some way it's coterminous with God's rule, impossible to say. But the seeds of what will become The Christian understanding of Jesus' role, I think, from the evidence of the Gospels and from the evidence of Paul's letters and the the trace elements of pre-Pauline
1: teachings within Paul's letters seem to derive from Jesus himself. Right. Oh, wow. Did you catch that? It was a subclause within a subclause. Like in the subclause, he mentions the, the teaching of Paul, uh, which I would have thought deserved more than a subclause here or a passing mention later in the episode. But he then, as a subclause within a subclause, mentions trace elements of pre Pauline teaching. Uh, what is he referring to? I think surely uppermost in his mind is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, written in the very early 50s AD, which begins with a creed which was given to Paul when Paul was first converted. This is what we spoke about in 2019 in my interview with Tom. Uh, But let's read 1 Corinthians 15 for you. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born." So, in this pre-Pauline formula, Jesus is Christ. That is, he is the Jewish Messiah. His life, his death, and his resurrection are all according to the Scriptures. He is the fulfillment of the Hebrew Bible. And he definitely rose bodily and appeared to people who were still alive at the time of Paul's writings. As testimony to Jesus, this is early and this is exalted. And that's a problem if you think that the exalted teachings of Christ are later embellishments. But no, the trace elements of pre-Pauline teaching are incredibly early and incredibly exalted. Like the hymn that's recorded in Philippians 2 that says Jesus is in very nature God and will judge the world. The earliest stuff we have about Jesus considers him in the most exalted terms. And Jesus himself seems to have this very exalted view of his own identity and authority. As Tom and Dominic will discuss, uh, there were some other preachers of the end times in the 1st century AD, people like John the Baptist. To be that kind of apocalyptic preacher was fairly distinctive, but not completely unique. What was absolutely unique about Jesus was that he considers himself to be the judge.
2: And I think that that's what makes John the Baptist distinctive. That's what okay. he's preaching. And I okay. think that's what makes Jesus distinctive. And what makes Jesus even more distinctive is that he is laying claim to the role of the judge in this day of judgment, right. as far as we can tell. I mean, that is the implication of the parables. So normally
3: when people tell you the end of the world is nigh, they don't then say, and I will be the person who, you know, just no. divides people into sheep and goats. No. Um, they, they give that role to somebody more potent than themselves. But are you saying Jesus is explicitly saying, and I'm going to be the one who chooses
2: heaven and hell or whatever? Well, on the, ev- on the evidence of the Gospels, and, and of course, you know, they're not gospel.
1: The Gospels are not gospel. Okay, well, by that, I assume that Tom means, in his view, they are not always historically accurate. Um, Of course, there's a much more basic sense of what gospel actually means. In the ancient world, a gospel is what you publish in order to bring good news of a new ruler to the world. Gospels are the sort of thing a Caesar Augustus would publish to let the ancient world know there is a new emperor and a golden age has dawned. In that sense, the Gospels are gospel, aren't they? They they proclaim the king of the kingdom, and crucially, Jesus in the Gospels proclaims himself to be the king of the kingdom. He is the judge. Um, but I interrupted Tom. He was answering Dominic's question about whether Jesus is going to judge all people. Tom continues. But on the evidence of the Gospels, yeah, Jesus is constantly
2: pro- provoking confusion he 's provoking confusion among his critics because he's laying claim to all kinds of things and he 's doing all kinds of things that judeans shouldn 't do he 's hanging out with tax collectors he 's hanging out with prostitutes all this kind of stuff he 's hanging out with the lowest of the low yeah but his disciples are also confused, and this is arising from the fact that he is claiming an absolutely unheard of authority but the further strangeness is that this authority so so You know, there is this long tradition going back to the Enlightenment that Jesus was actually a freedom fighter, that he was a rebel. And in fact, it it goes back even beyond the Enlightenment. It goes back. to So in the time of of Diocletian, just before um, Constantine, there are skeptical pagan philosophers who are saying that Jesus was a rebel, that he took to the hills, that he was a kind of bandit at the head of rebels. So that is a tradition. But based on the evidence of the Gospels, this is this is not the case at all. And had Jesus been a rebel, again, it's hard to see why he would have been enshrined as Christian tradition enshrines him. The gospel writers, Paul, the people who exist before Paul, because the one thing that you get again and again and again throughout the gospels is that Jesus is proclaiming what he calls the kingdom of God. And this kingdom is not one that is founded in military exploits. It's not one that is founded in the kind of the appurtenances of power. So what Jesus is doing is he's announcing the presence, the imminence, the near arrival of a kingdom that has no political substance whatsoever. And its authority is something that can be felt in the heart. It can't be experienced as something that is upheld by soldiers or courts or laws or judges or anything like that. So basically what he's doing, he, he is preaching the idea of a kingdom of virtue. And this is such a momentous idea. We live with the effects of that in 2022. This idea that there is a kingdom of virtue that transcends the churn of politics. It's such a potent idea. And you know, if it doesn't come from Jesus, then where does it come from? Are the gospel writers just making it up? I mean, it seems improbable. And so the likeliest explanation, as far as I'm concerned, is that it does derive from Jesus, you know, on the principle of Occam's razor.
1: So the judgment that comes is to bring a kingdom from out of this world, and 2,000 years later, we are living with the consequences of this idea. That's why elsewhere Tom calls Christianity the most disruptive, the most influential, and the most enduring revolution in history. And here's the remarkable thing. Jesus understands himself in those terms. It's quite rare to think of yourself as the Messiah. It's even rarer to get other people in your lifetime to believe that. It is out of this world to get multitudes to believe this, even after you've been declared a condemned criminal and executed in God-forsaken agony. That is a big ask. So Dominic now presses into Jesus' messianic uh, self-understanding, and this is interesting.
3: If he is proclaiming himself the Jewish Messiah, that is an explicitly political claim isn't it it's not just a kind of theological
2: supernatural claim we go back to the strangeness of, of this idea of the kingdom of god that that he is situating the kingdom of god beyond the dimensions of as he sees it earthly kingdom so you know he goes to the temple and in the synoptic accounts it's after that that he's brought this question by the pharisees who are trying to trip him up should we pay taxes to caesar yeah and he asks for a coin and he can do this because in galilee there are no roman coins but in judea there are and he's shown the, the the coin and he says whose head is that and the, the pharisee replies caesar and so he famously replies render unto caesar what is caesar's and render unto god what is god and this is it's a brilliant repost but it's also an acorn from which a mighty oak will grow it's it, and that oak is you know it's the secular tradition that we inhabit I'd say that
3: oak is your book dominion tom
2: pretty it? much pretty much and and this is a kind of you know this is an incredibly radical subversive and yet poetic teaching it's not the teaching of of a revolutionary it's not the teacher of someone who is raising the sword against the romans or anything like that right. but it is the teaching of someone whose concept of a kingdom that transcends earthly power will have this stupefying i mean Kind of an impact so profound that it's almost impossible to measure its impact has been so overwhelming that we don't even recognize it for what it is, and this is where it begins
3: to play the skeptic again though Tom is it not possible that that would that is a detail inserted later on precisely because the early Christians want this creed to thrive in the Roman world, so they put in this detail which is unthreatening ostentatiously
2: unthreatening to roman political order i mean that is that is one perspective that you could bring but i think that that is reflective of someone who's been steeped in the study of 20th century political propaganda <laughs> or the way that things are marketed right because why would christians be risking their lives to preach something that they were simultaneously faking and right. the other thing is that that formulation render unto caesar i mean it's brilliant and it's subversive. Yeah. Who would make it up? I mean, who would come up with that if not someone who was a brilliant preacher and had a very, very weird understanding in the context of the age Yeah, of what power was? And it seems likely to me that that person was Jesus because that's what the gospels are claiming and that's what the evidence of, of how he comes to be reverenced by his followers after his death is pointing yeah. to, rather than that it's some, you know, slimy... <laughs> Uh, PR guy trying right. to right. trying to market his new, you know, this new cult to gullible Romans. The Peter Mandelson of the... <laughs> the Peter uh, Ma- yeah, I mean, that seems a-, a very, very 21st century perspective okay. that does not, I think, correspond to the evidence. Oh, shame. I've let myself down. I've let <laughs> you down.
3: I've let the podcast yeah, you down.
2: You've let God down. I have done.
3: Right. <laughs> and on that note, I think we should take a break
1: while I try to recover my composure. <laughs> It's, it's just the best podcast, isn't it? I mean, notice the arguments going on. First, the disciples weren't going to be faking something, that they were also staking their lives on. And then second, it's the question, who, like, where are we going to locate the genius? In Peter, in the other losers and no-hopers who followed Jesus? No, it seems that the genius resides in Jesus and that his followers basically preserved that for us. So, Moving on in the podcast, the next thing they discuss is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on a donkey, not a warhorse, and then they get to the death of Jesus, the the passion narrative.
2: And I think that looking at the evidence from Josephus, there's nothing about this narrative that seems particularly implausible. I mean, to repeat, some of the details of the of the passion narrative, I think are are garnished are are, are probably implausible, but the overall sweep of it does seem to be true. And it revolves around this issue that we still don't really know is, does the high priest have the power to put people to death or does he have to get the Romans to do it? Yeah. And the only way that they can get the Romans to do it is to persuade the Romans that, that Jesus is actually a rebel. And so that, that again, is is kind of the, the bedrock of, of the passion narrative, Jesus being handed over to Pilate, who then interrogates him, and Jesus refusing to answer. So I think that, again, I, I, I suspect that this is something that is historical, that Jesus accepts his fate, that he willingly accepts his fate. This is something that is emphasized within the Gospels and that he maintains his silence because he's not there to engage in political debate or religious debate with the Romans or with the, uh, the high priests. Because the thing is, is, that it's not as though the priests by sending Jesus to Pilate is sending him to the, a secular authority. He isn't. Pilate is based in Caesarea, which is the city named after the divine Augustus, the deified Augustus. Pilate is the representative, again, of a kind of distinctively supernatural understanding of the world that to Jesus is profoundly offensive. And so that's why I think he's not engaging
1: with it. Wow, that that is so true. And I forget that all the time. Um... I, I learned from Tom Holland. I'm a, I'm a better preacher, I hope, because of Tom Holland, because how often do you just think of Pilate as a secular authority? And you think, duh, there's no such thing as secular yet. The oak tree has not yet grown and given us the fruit of secularism. Um, to an ancient mindset, Pilate is as religious a figure as he is a political figure. In the ancient world, they did not separate religion and politics. And, and that helps you read the narrative with Pilate in a, in a really different way. Uh, Pilate is religious. He's pagan religious but he's religious Um, but here's something really interesting tom thinks that this jesus Pilate discourse is authentic tom thinks there is something real about that interplay and i do too and maybe you do too but i wonder if we're making that decision based on um historical rules or whether the ring of truth comes to us in a different kind of a way how are how are our, our beliefs formed what is it that we take on trust? Because the vast majority of the things that we know, we don't have direct proof of. I'm just talking about in, in regular life. You know, We get told things by people we trust. And I'm, I'm going to pluck a, finger, a, a figure out of the air, but I reckon 98% of my knowledge <laughs> has come to me from the testimony of another. It's, it's testimony that you've had no reason to doubt and you take it on faith. We all do this and there's nothing grubby or wrong or lamentable about this. It's life. And we do this with the Gospels too. You read, you read the Gospels, and G- the Jesus of the Gospels comes home to you with a self-attesting, self-authenticating authority and truthfulness, and you just go, "Yeah, yeah, I think that's real." So, uh, next in the podcast, Dominic brings up Jesus's teaching on the Last Supper. But Jesus has already had the Last Supper, at which he yes. has basically implied that he's
2: going. Yeah. that he's going and there's the stuff with the body and the blood. And, and again, the, deta- the, the the record of this is incredibly early because it's attested to in Paul's letters as something that is already a formula. So presumably this is being repeated maybe, you know, years after, very, very soon after Jesus's death. And do, and do we know... Tom, where the, where this comes from? Where does, it, where does all this come from? Well, I think it probably comes from from memories of Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that it's exact. You know, they're not taking, you know, they're not filming it on iPhones or anything. You, it's not an exact transcription. But almost everything that Jesus says and almost everything more perhaps more pertinently that Jesus does has this kind of striking memorable quality that seems almost designed to enable people to remember it. I don't think that the early Christians seem to have particularly fetishized accuracy in the way that, say, a journalist today might or a, um, a historian today might. You know, the disciples have been going around with Jesus. He's got his stump speech. He's got these formulations. He's got these kind of memorable phrases. He's got these memorable stories and they remember them. And they may not be exactly word for word. They may not be verbatim. But I think the likelihood is, is that they do reflect the authentic speeches of this man because they have a kind of inherent integrity. They have an inherent coherence and they are so striking and they're so memorable that if they didn't come from Jesus, then where did they come
1: from? New Testament scholars also speak in this way, like, do we have the ipsissima verba, the very words of Jesus, or do we have the ipsissima vox, the very voice of Jesus? And plenty of people who have a very high view of Scripture believe that the Holy Spirit had the disciples record the ipsissima vox, the very voice of Jesus in the Bible, without getting too caught up with the ipsissima verba, the actual words. So, you know, very conservative Bible scholars are kind of with Tom on that. And, and as Tom says, if this stuff didn't come from Jesus... Who did it come from with its internal integrity and coherence? And then Dominic takes us from talking about the death of Jesus to the resurrection. But then, Tom, the twist that elevates this above all other stories
3: the resurrection. And this is something, so going back to what I was reading from E.P. Sanders, he says, he, pretty much what you were saying, if you were going to create a fraud, if you were going to make this up, you would at least make sure that the stories matched and that they weren't full <laughs> yeah. of inconsistencies and they yeah. weren't so strange and and he sort of, and, and E. P. Sanders says, you know, Jesus, it's very clear he's not a ghost, nor is he somebody who has survived crucifixion and is kind of covered in
2: blood and so in the gospels, the resurrected Jesus is kind of defined almost in terms of what he's not. The sense you get is that they are struggling to explain what it is that they've experienced. And again, I have no doubt that they did experience something. Now, what that experience was is a a totally different question. That's beyond the remit of A of (laughs) a history podcast to discuss. But it does seem to me a basic historical fact that they must have experienced something. Because again, it's why otherwise would they have believed what they believed? Yeah. And and the thing is that the, the resurrection in itself is not what proves to them that Jesus is the Messiah and in due course, the son of God that seems to be rooted in what Jesus himself had taught. But the fact that he rises from the dead seems to them to have suddenly things that Jesus had told them made sense. And it kind of clicks now Of course, there are all kinds of other theories as to what might have happened.
1: I have no doubt that they experienced something. I think this this is vital. As Tom said to me in 2019, there was a seismic event in the first century, the reverberations of which are being felt today. There is this incredible rupture that we're still feeling the effects of. It's like the Big Bang, you know. Yeah. We know what the Big Bang is because we see an expanding universe. We see this expanding thing called Christendom and... Yeah. There is something. There was, there was something. And do you feel comfortable that the letters of Paul... That you're, you're hanging that something on the letters of Paul? i it seems I'm to hanging them on the letters of Paul.
2: Yeah. Paul but Paul's letters are, if you like, our first reader on the, uh, you know, the, 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 the seismometer. Yes. Uh, it's, right. it's the yes. first great jag that, yes. that lets us know that something's... Right. But it's not in itself yes. The, yes. Uh, the earthquake. Yes. I would go so far as to say I don't think that Anything resembling Christianity would have happened had that first generation not believed that something spectacularly odd had mm-hmm. happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that that seems to me an irrefutable historical fact. Yes. What that odd thing was, how it's to be explained, mm-hmm. uh, you know,
1: not, not for me to say. So that's the seismic event that happened. But the disciples' report of the resurrection is not the the seismic event. Paul's letters are not the seismic event. The disciples' proclamation of this is the spike, res, you know, registering on the seismograph. What was the seismic event itself? It was something, but what was it? And Tom, in the podcast, goes through a number of alternative theories. And he isn't particularly enthusiastic about any of the alternatives. He says, you know, maybe the disciples stole the body. Maybe Jesus didn't actually die. Maybe he was never crucified. Maybe there were mass hallucinations or magic mushrooms or whatever it is. But for whatever reason, people started believing that Jesus rose, that something happened. I would say, for whatever reason.
2: Probably, to do with what Jesus himself had taught before his death, and some strangeness, something weird that happens after it, whether the body gets stolen, whatever I mean we don't know, yeah, people very, very early on think that Jesus has risen, that he is the Messiah, and pretty quickly they're coming to the the, the conclusion you know they're making very, very exalted claims for Jesus that he's included with God as a kind of recipient of the cultic devotion of early Christians. Because people are not worshipping
3: him during his lifetime. Is that right? They're following him, but they're not, no. they don't
2: think he's God. If the Gospels can be relied upon, they seem unsure as to who he, or what he is. They just know that he's something very, well, the special one. But at some basic level, they must know he's the carpenter guy from Nazareth. So, you know, no prophet is has honour in his own land. This is, yeah. Jesus quotes this. So, yes, I mean, maybe people who he's grown up among are less inclined to
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: you know, <laughs> if you,
1: pay if lip you, service
2: to all this kind of mad stuff he's coming out if with. If you were playing football <laughs> with him in the reign of Augustus, you're less likely to... Uh, yeah, exactly. So look at the earliest Christian text we have, yeah. uh, which is probably the first letter that Paul writes to the Thessalonians, in that Jesus is hailed by Paul as, as Kyrios, as Lord. And that's a word that is also applied to God uh, by Greek-speaking Judeans um he is described as the son of god paul is, is saying that jesus will come and he will he will rescue the the elect he will rescue the saved and this is a tradition that you also get in mark who is the earliest gospel probably um where you know he says that people will sit the son of man will come in in clouds you know with power and and glory and he will send the angels out and he will gather up the elect and and You know,
1: it's all going to be tremendous and hurrah. So yes, Tom does get to Paul in these podcasts. And even the briefest look at Paul shows us early and exalted views of Jesus. This is not something that slowly develops over generations. The earliest stuff we have about Jesus calls him the most exalted things, like Lord and Son of God and Judge of the world. And for Tom, that's not merely because Christ's followers believed him to have risen from the dead. Tom points to three factors in gaining an exalted view of Jesus. There's his resurrection. Yes. But before that, there's his death and the way he embraces it as a willing substitute. And and then before that, his life and his teaching. So I think it's three things. I think it,
2: uh, undoubtedly the resurrection or people believing in the resurrection is a crucial part of it. I think the drama of his death, which in some way Jesus seems to have embraced. He seems to have knowingly gone to his death and The way in which it is possible for the disciples and the apostles and his followers to frame it and to to see it as the expression of prophecies that are in Judean scripture that had never been previously been understood in that light, that actually God will manifest himself through humiliation and death. I mean, that's the kind of the blinding insight that Paul, for instance, clearly has. It's something that is, he sees, he recognizes having always been there in Judean scripture and Jesus's death has, has kind of made it manifest. But neither of those things I, I think would happen had Jesus himself not been the most remarkable teacher, because I think it's the stickability of his sayings, of his teachings. So Nietzsche brilliantly described Jesus as having had a flair for language that today would see him sent to Siberia right it's the fact that 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 jesus is preaching something very odd unsettling disturbing and yet attractive to his listeners and that he preaches it in a way that sticks in the mind you don't have to believe that everything in the gospels is literally the words of jesus is literally gospel i think to accept that this kind of body of sayings is so consistent it's so coherent it's so distinctive that it's very hard to explain where they would have come from, if not from a, a remarkable figure. And Christians see Jesus, obviously, as having been a remarkable figure. And so the fact that Jesus was a remarkable figure and that this is what prompted Christians to write about him seems to me the likeliest explanation for it. That's a hunch derived from my reading of the, the material. There are, of, of course, a whole range of other explanations that, that would be possible. And so to an extent, that is my formulation of a position that ultimately I'm agnostic about. So just on
3: other explanations, um, your explanation focuses very much on the personality of Jesus. Is there another explanation which would be focused more on the context, which would be there is a, not on supply, as it were, but on demand, that there is a particular context in the first century AD in which people are craved for whatever reason, I don't know, economic, political, people are craving this. And so they almost create it. Is that plausible?
2: I don't think so. Because this
3: isn't a particularly troubled or difficult period for people in the Eastern Mediterranean? Not particularly, no.
2: The idea that uh, Palestine was heaving with kind of revolutionary instincts is is one that's been very popular, but I think is not true. Right. We did two episodes on the Judean revolt. I think it was basically, it was a kind of accident. It was, it, yeah. it was contingency that prompted it. And so then we read back to it. But, you know, as I say, right at the beginning, there are people who are making, you know, Roman rule is pretty brutal. Like uh, Conditions are pretty tough. There are people who are claiming divine sanction for claims for a kingship. But I think, you know, none of the others inspired what Jesus inspired. So there's something about Jesus. That's what you're basically, there is something special. I mean, I think that you could... And indeed, I have <laughs> Ex- explain explain the 2000 years of Western, you know, of history as attempts to answer who Jesus was. Yeah. Christians have done it and, and post-Christians have done it. it. You know, it's the question of who he was. And by that, I mean more than, you know, was he a real person? But was he, you know, what, what, what exactly was he? I think this is not a back projected strangeness. I think the right. strangeness was hardwired into him. And you don't have to be a Christian to accept that because Nietzsche said that, you know, Nietzsche said Jesus is the strangest person who ever lived. You mentioned Occam's razor before.
1: I mean, if you're using Occam's razor, the simplest explanation is that Jesus was the son of God. Dominic Sandbrook comes out as more Christian than Tom in this episode, I reckon. Occam's razor, Jesus is the son of God. Boom. And, and, you know, even if you don't conclude that Jesus is the son of God, I think this conversation shows you it's not silly to believe that. It's not silly to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It's not. And it's not against the evidence to believe this. If you ask me, you've got to be resistant to the evidence to continue to hold out against this. Tom, though, wants to properly wear his historian hat. And that's a good thing. But that's why he says this. Well, do historians
2: make that claim? Do other historians who would end their book by saying, No, they don't, because... You know, Stephen Jay Gould said that there are rival magisteria, the magisteria of science and of religion. And I guess that historians would say that there are rival magisteria, you know, religion and history are rival. Yes. So Stephen Jay Gould said, famously said that they're a rival magisteria, the magisteria of science of religion. And I guess historians would catch it in similar terms, that you know, that history and religion are rival magisteria.
1: This is probably the biggest disagreement I have with Tom. When you when you look at something like Professor NT Wright's The Resurrection and the Son of God, it is a work of scholarship and it is the work of a clergyman. Tom Wright went on to become the Bishop of Durham no less. And and certainly for NT Wright, faith and history were not rival magisteria. And actually I can't find anywhere where st- Stephen Jay Gould speaks of science and faith as rival magisteria. What he's famous for saying is that they are non-overlapping magisteria. Rival, to me, speaks of competition and turf war. Non-overlapping means that there can be peaceful coexistence. Us over here, you over there. And actually, the parallel with science is instructive. A scientist who is a Christian can believe in miracles, but that doesn't mean that their explanations for every data set involve the miraculous. Likewise, as Tom says, a Christian can be a historian. And it doesn't mean that they infer resurrections just happening all over the place. But here's the question. Can they still believe that on Easter it did happen? And can they do so with good historical data behind them? Surely, yes. Surely. And in the case of someone like N.T. Wright, you can point to 800 pages of tightly argued scholarship that's pretty impressive. So I don't agree that rivalry is the correct paradigm here. So Gibbon... um in the uh, back in the 18th century
2: you know he 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 articulated this very well he said the theologian may indulge the pleasing task of describing religion as she descended from heaven arrayed in her native purity a more melancholy duty is imposed on the historian i mean i think that historians do not accept supernatural explanations they may yeah. be christian i mean there's nothing to stop a a, a a historian being a christian or believing in the supernatural but i think when they come to write history by and large they don't adduce supernatural explanations. yeah, And I don't think that you need supernatural explanations to explain Jesus and the emergence of Christianity.
1: I think the scientific analogy is really interesting. Tom Wright, for instance, N.T. Wright, he, he gives an argument for the resurrection, one among many, that is basically a parallel to the scientific argument for the Big Bang. Basically, we started to believe in the Big Bang because we observed an expanding universe. Once we knew the universe was expanding, we could wind back the clock and infer what must have happened in the distant past. At some point there was a singularity, there was an explosion, what came to be known as a bang. And you can do the same thing with Christianity, says Tom Wright. You know, We have witnessed the most extraordinary expanding universe of Christian influence, and Tom Holland's dominion is a terrific exploration of that expansion. But go back to its origins. Where was the bang? The bang was in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Something incredibly powerful was unleashed. The disciples saw it, and they were changed by it, and now everything has been changed by it. The resurrection is that bang, that injection of spiritual power into the world. But just as, at a singularity, the laws of physics break down, so when you encounter the one who makes history, maybe you shouldn't be surprised if things don't occur according to ordinary historical processes. Maybe you should expect weirdness. Tom Holland does a great job climatizing us to the weirdness of the Jesus story. So I don't think I'm massively disagreeing with Tom here. I'm just pressing into that weirdness and saying, because we respect the weirdness of the singular person of Jesus, that does not have to be seen as something competing with historicity. I think it explains historicity. It explains the historical impact, right? The irregularity of the Big Bang explains the regularity of the universe. And the irregularity of the history-maker Jesus rising from the dead explains the regularity of history. What do you make of that? It's a, it's a thought. Anyway, tell me, tell me what you think about about that argument in the comments. Anyway, final words from the guys, and it's an extraordinary end to the podcast.
2: You know, I think there are lots of reasons why one might choose not to, to believe in God and specifically perhaps not believe in the, the Christian understanding of God. But I would say that the inadequacy of the New Testament as source would not be one of them that I would deduce. So I've come to this from... Studying both the origins of Islam and from studying classical sources, and the the closer I, up I get to them, the the more, you know, I'm, I'm pretty impressed by <laughs> actually how much evidence there is for Jesus. Tom is impressed. It seems Dominic is impressed too. Is it
0: the and biggest I,
3: story in history? Do you think? Because it's so foundational for our entire understanding of the, ourselves and the world, our culture, our literature. Uh, our assumptions, our moral landscape, all these kinds of things.
2: So, I, I remember years when I was at school, we were doing Roman history and a teacher saying, What was the most significant event in the lifetime of Augustus? And so, you know, Battle of Actium or whatever. Yeah. And he said, Of course, it's the birth of Jesus. And he was saying that not as a Christian, but because that is the most significant event. What happens with the lifetime of Jesus? Had Jesus not existed, I think the world would be unfathomably different. Yeah. Right. Shall I end with, uh, with a Bible reading? Oh, Tom, I'd love that. I really would. Uh, I'm going to end with um, the very last verse of the Gospel of St. John. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. And that would be a problem for us, wouldn't it?
3: It's it is,
2: finished the podcast. And that's it. Amen. Jolly
3: good. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas.
0: (laughs) It's
1: just the best podcast. And, And there you have it. Jesus has launched the most disruptive, influential, and enduring revolution in history. The world would have been unfathomably different without him. And consider the source. Jesus is a northern nobody from a backwater called Nazareth. He considers himself to be the king of the kingdom and that his kingdom will take over the world. It will grow like a mustard seed growing into the biggest plant. That was one of Jesus' parables. Or it will grow like a measure of yeast working through a whole batch of dough. That's another parable that Jesus used. He said that the gates of hell could not hold out against his global and cosmic kingdom. World domination is next for Jesus. And within months of Jesus saying that, he's choking to death on a Roman cross. And then three days later, he's being worshipped and proclaimed. (laughs) And the movement from him, from that resurrection, has taken over the world just as he predicted. It seems to me that Jesus is not just historical. He is super historical. He's history-making. If we play pool, let's imagine we're playing a game of pool, and uh, I just kind of bash the cue ball into the seven, right? And then the, the, the seven bounces like, off, off the rail and then hits the two into the four, which goes around three sides and cannons into the six and goes in the far corner pocket. Okay, And what do you call it? You call it a fluke. But what if I call the shot first? What if I tell you I'm going to smash the cue ball into the seven and it'll bounce off the rail and hit the two into the four, which will go around three sides, it will cannon into the six, and it will go into the far corner pocket. What do you call me then? I'm a genius, right? Well, Jesus did not just pull off an unlikely shot taking over the world. Like, you've heard Tom Holland. He had that self-understanding from the outset. He's the judge of the world. He's the king of the kingdom. He's the Messiah to set the world to rights. He called the shot and he pulled it off. Genius, And when you read the Gospels, you get the sense of his genius. You encounter him, and you find yourself accepting the words of these testimonies, even when it's just Jesus and Pontius Pilate having the conversation, and you recognize the weirdness of it all, and you still think it's true. And if that can happen regarding the Pontius Pilate stuff, or maybe it can happen with the nativity stuff too. That's why we're talking to Peter Williams. Uh, Keep your eyes peeled for that episode. He's a Christian who's also a tremendous scholar of the ancient world, and he also believes in the birth narratives. And that'll be a fascinating conversation. Search for our other Tom Holland interviews. He is terrific in all of them. And why don't you give this video a share? Send it to folks you know. Link to it on social media.
0: And we'll see you soon. Well, there we go. Thank you so much for listening. Just uh, one thing to draw your attention to. On the 16th of January at 8pm, we have our next Speak Life Vision evening. It will be on Zoom like the last one. The last one went really well, actually. Uh, We had lots of people joining us online for an actually interesting Zoom call. And we talked about the future of Speak Life. We talked about uh, engaging with uh, the current meaning crisis. And it was just a a great opportunity to kind of hang out over Zoom. So we'd love to have you along uh, for the next one, which we're calling Blue Sky Monday on the 16th of January. We'll be accompanied by a very special guest, Rachel Jordan-Wolf, to talk about some statistics in terms of evangelism in the UK to sign up go to speaklife.org.uk forward slash vision Uh, you will need to go to that link and sign up in order for us to uh, give you the zoom details when the time comes so why not do that now well that's all from me thank you so much for listening we will be back very soon god bless